Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from 2 John chapter 1, verses 7 to 11. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Be on your guard so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but may receive a full reward. Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, but goes beyond it, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Do not receive into the house or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching. For to welcome is to participate in the evil deeds of such a person. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, So now many antichrists have come. If you didn't notice yet today, we're going to be talking about the antichrist. I know many of you have been waiting many years for this, so uh, just be ready. It's going to be fun. For this, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and you know that no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Really nice gift, right? Unexpected. Very nice, though. So we are doing our sermon series, Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. Each week we are looking at the documents in the New Testament, and we are asking the question, what does the church in the first century have to teach us about being the church in the 21st century? That's right. You got it down. It's good. It's good. So the third part of the series, what it's really concerned with is this idea of talking about how Christianity, it establishes itself as having a separate identity from Judaism. And what we've been talking about is how Judaism and Christianity are now kind of splitting apart from one another. And last week, one of the things we talked about, which I thought was rather interesting, is how Christianity, one of the ways it differentiates itself from Judaism, is in the way that they think about afterlife. Now bear with me for a moment, because I need to do just a little bit of recap. I know that you all know this already, but let me just make sure that everybody's on the same page for anybody who may not have been here. So the way that the earliest Christians thought about afterlife was pretty simple. They believed that when you die, your body goes into the ground and you're asleep. Literally, you're just asleep. And then, eventually, when Jesus comes back, you are brought back to life. Literally, your body is resurrected, brought back, and you're just here. And you're like, oh, okay, 
Nothing happened in between. It was just you die, and now you're back. They didn't really have a concept of the soul. It's very important. They didn't have a concept of the soul. But towards the end of the first century, you see that in the third part of the series, we're dealing from 90 to 120. When you get into the 90s of the first century, that's when this idea of the soul begins to creep into Christianity for the first time. Now, what I didn't tell you about last week is how this idea of the soul becomes part of Christianity. And that's what I want to start with today. Now, in order to understand all of this, I think we need to define that word soul, because I think the word soul means different things to different people. Is that true? It can be. I don't think everybody's necessarily on the same page on that. So let me define it for you, at least what I think it is. My definition comes from the traditional understanding, which is that the soul is the spiritual part of the person. The soul is kind of like the essence of the individual. It's what makes us unique. And Christians believe that the soul separates from the body after death and can go on living eternally. Now, is this, generally speaking, what most of you think of when you think of a soul? Generally, maybe, yes, no, a little bit? Okay, it's what I tend to believe. I believe that there is something spiritual inside of us that will go on living after we die, and I refer to that as the soul. Now, even though many people in here, you kind of would generally agree with that definition, what you have to realize is that this is not how Jesus would have thought about that word soul. You see, Jesus was Jewish, and the Jews had a very different concept of the soul than we did. So, when you look at that word soul, they actually used it all the time. It's in one of the most famous scriptures. It's known as the Shema from Deuteronomy. If you've never read the Shema, you will recognize it. Trust me. Let's just read it real quick. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You've seen it before, haven't you? Because Jesus quotes it. It's part of the greatest commandment. Now, that word soul here, though, is different from the way we think about it. Like, we're thinking about something, like I said, that's a spiritual part of us that can separate. That wasn't their idea. Their idea was that it represented your being. So maybe a better translation would be, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your might. In this way, the soul kind of represents your existence or your life. So the, this commandment is you're supposed to love God with all of the life inside of you. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like all the life inside of you, that's what you're supposed to love God with. But the Jews, they didn't really have a very defined way of how that life inside of you could continue on after you die. Like th that didn't really exist for them. And because the earliest Christians were also Jewish, right? Like we know that, like the earliest Christians, they were Jews. They kind of agreed with this. And this is why the resurrection thing is so important to the earliest Christians. So just think about it for a second. From their perspective, if you want to have afterlife, literally life after this one, they thought of you as having this physical body. This is how we are right now, right? And then you die. Well, if you want to have life after this, well, you got to have another physical body, right? So you need to be brought back and be given a new body. Very tangible. You following me so far? Okay. That's why it's so critical to these earliest Christians. But then what happens is, when Judaism and Christianity start to split apart from one another, what you find is that Christianity gets influenced by other cultures. And one of the cultures that really influences Christianity, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is Greek culture. And Greek culture, one of the biggest minds of Greek culture was a man named Plato. 
Now, Plato, as you can see from his dates, he lived from 428 to 348 BC. So he's several hundred years before Jesus. And Plato is the first person to ever really talk about this idea that a human being has a soul that can continue on after we die. Now, isn't this fascinating? I think this is really very interesting. That we all hold this idea to be true, most of us at least, and you can trace this one idea all the way back to this one guy who came up with it two, more than 2,000 years ago. It comes from Greek philosophy. And it's a very interesting idea. It's where it comes from. I just want you to understand that's the origin of it. Now, Greek culture was very, very influential. People love Greek culture. It's kind of like how a lot of people, they look at like Hollywood and American culture. They look at it and they say, oh, we want to be like Americans sometimes. They'll look, at, they'll look at our country that way. That was how they were with Greek culture. They wanted to be like them. And so as a result, people kind of took to it. And so this idea of the soul, it began to just spread everywhere. But once it gets down to the Holy Land, what you have to realize is that not all Jews were like, yeah, let's embrace Greek culture. They weren't like that. Many Jews said, we don't want any part of that. And this is why the concept of the soul doesn't get integrated into Judaism. Does that make sense? Because they were like, we don't want anything to do with Greek culture. And so this is why they didn't really have that concept. But Christianity is a little different, right? We start in the Holy Land. That's where Jesus was. And then what happens? It goes everywhere. And it gets exposed to Greek culture, and this is why the idea of the soul infiltrates into Christianity. And it's why Judaism and Christianity, they split in terms of afterlife. Okay, you with me so far? You with me so far? Okay. So, now that we've kind of talked about that, I think we need to just kind of acknowledge something here, which is that even though today many of us take for granted the idea that most humans have a soul, this idea, when it was first introduced into Christianity, actually caused a lot of conflict. Like, a lot of conflict. And that's actually what you're seeing. When we read First and Second John, they were talking about that conflict, even though you may not have realized it. So let's begin with Second John. That'll lay the foundation for us. And then we're going to move into First John. Sound good? All right, first John, or second John, what does it say? Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay, what is going on here? So what is a deceiver? A deceiver is anyone who misleads with false statements, right? It's anybody who intentionally tells you the opposite of the truth. So what are they deceiving them with? This is, what does it say up there? What's the, what's the deception? They're saying that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, right? What does that even mean, that Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh? Well, to explain this to you, the first thing you need to understand is that when this letter was written, there wasn't just one version of Christianity. There were many competing versions of Christianity that were out there in the world and they were all vying for real estate. In fact, the version we follow today wasn't even the most popular version. There were other versions out there that were way more popular. And so one version that was really gaining steam at the end of the first century is what we call today docetism. And what these docetics believed is that Jesus was never a flesh and blood per person, that he didn't have a body, essentially. They believed that he was pure spirit. And this is where things get really strange. What they thought is that 
what people experienced as Jesus during his lifetime, that that was actually not Jesus in flesh and blood. It appeared as though he were flesh and blood, but in fact, it was not really who he was, that he was real spirit. So you saw him and you were like, oh yeah, that would be flesh and blood, but really he was just a spiritual being. Now that's what 2 John is talking about here when he says that they didn't come in the flesh. Now that might sound kind of strange, right? That people would be attracted to a version of Christianity where Jesus is pure spirit and not an actual person. Does that sound strange to you? Okay. Because we talk about him, he's like a person all the time, right? But here's what you have to realize is that it makes total sense when you understand how the Greeks thought about the soul. So, once Plato introduces this idea, right, he says, hey, everybody has a soul. Everybody's like, yeah, that sounds good. Like, we'll go with that, right? People started to think that the soul was the good part of the person and the body was the bad part of the person. Now, why do they think that way? They think that way because the body needs food, right? You've got to eat all the time, don't you? Otherwise, you don't have energy and you'll die. The body needs rest. You have to sleep. You get tired. The body gets injured. The body gets sick. The body will eventually perish. Right? So, what does this tell you? This tells you that the body is frail. That the body can't last forever. And actually, the body causes us a lot of problems. When you look around at a lot of the things that happen in our world, why do they happen? They happen because of the impulses within our bodies. Right? And so, as a result of this, many Greeks... They came to believe that the body was like a prison cell for the soul. That's how they thought about it. And that the soul longed to be released from the body. And so as a result of this, they came to see the physical world, everything that we're in right here, as being inherently evil. And they saw the spiritual world as being inherently good. Okay, that's really important for this. So you got that part, right? Okay, so that's how they thought about it. Okay, so now, here's what happens. Christianity starts spreading all throughout the Mediterranean. It's starting to go everywhere. And you have to realize that the Greeks were only mildly interested in Jesus' story. You want to know why? Because he's just a flesh and blood guy. Like, that's who he was, right? Just this flesh and blood dude. And if he's that way, and the, and the physical world is inherently evil... He doesn't really have anything that special to offer, does he? But what they did like about his story was what happened to him after he died. And so this is what they thought. Greek Christians believed that when Jesus died, his soul separated from his body and went to be with God in the spiritual world, right? Which, of course, is what? Inherently good, right? And then he comes back to earth in spirit form. And that's what makes him worth following is because he comes back with him all of this knowledge. He brings with him all this knowledge about the spiritual world. But you have to realize they didn't believe that he was resurrected in a body. Why? Because that would make him evil again, wouldn't it? If he was a body, if he goes back into a body, well, then that defeats the whole purpose of following him. So this is why they believed he was pure spirit. And this is, why they, this is how they thought about him. Are you following me so far? You with me? I know this is like... Strange, right? Okay, so what you have to also realize is that 
because, of this, because they thought about Jesus in this way, they only really cared about what happened to Jesus after his resurrection. Like, they didn't really care what happened to him during his life. It's what happened to him after he died. And this was not a minority point of view, by the way. This was actually shared by lots of different people because so many Greeks had this understanding of the soul, which presented them with some real problems. Because you have to realize, have you read our Gospels before? Have you ever looked at them? They are predominant, maybe, yeah, right? Uh, maybe I have once in a while. If you look at them, they are predominantly talking about what happened to Jesus before he died. Like, that's most of the Gospel, right? And there's like a little bit later on. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have very little about what happens to Jesus after his resurrection. There's basically, in John, you have two chapters. In Mark, the original version of Mark, you got nothing. Nothing happens. They find the tombs empty, and then gospel's over. Nothing more to it than that. So these people, they look at these gospels, and they say, hey, we can't really use these. They're not really meaningful to us. So you know what they did? They went out and wrote their own Gospels. They were like, yeah, these don't work. We'll just write our own. And in their Gospels, Jesus is pure spirit. And usually it picks up right after Jesus dies. Or if they do portray Jesus during his lifetime, he's pure spirit. And we actually have some of these Gospels still. They made it. They actually made it all the way through. They're known as the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Philip. You can go back and read these. They are strange, but they were very popular at the time. And it actually caused people to start leaving those churches that were founded by Jesus' disciples, and they were going over to these other churches that believed that Jesus was pure spirit. This is what 1 John is talking about. Now, I've given you the whole background. Let's read this verse from 1 John, and it'll make sense now. Take a look. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. Who are they talking? Who's they? All those, the Docetics, the people who believe that Jesus is pure spirit, right? They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. So what's happening? What's happening is that these people, they're in a disagreement over whether Jesus had a body or whether Jesus was spirit. And it's in here that you see this word antichrist for the first time. Now, when you think of antichrist, be honest with me, what do you generally think of, Right? You're thinking of Satan, right? Or the child of Satan. That's always a real fun one, right? The child of Satan is the Antichrist. That's not what it means. Antichrist just means against Christ. Like, literally, it means the opposite of Christ. So here's what the Antichrist is. It's any person who is trying to put forth a version of Jesus where he is pure spirit as opposed to flesh and blood. That's all it is. You're promoting a version of Jesus that is the opposite of who he was during his lifetime, who he, how he actually was. That's why he's the anti-Christ, literally the opposite of Jesus. The real Jesus was flesh and blood. The opposite of Jesus is pure spirit. All right, I'm done. That's the whole sermon for today. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Okay, why have I taken all of this time to tell you about this? A couple different reasons. First reason is that First and second John appear in our Bibles, and I feel that it's important that you are at least knowledgeable about what they're about, right? I mean, one of the reasons why I preach the way I do is that you shouldn't be ignorant of the things that you have. If you're a Christian, this is part of your Bible, you should at least know about it. And more important than even that is that I don't want to hear any single person in here say, 
oh, the Antichrist is coming back any day now, or that person's the Antichrist. I hear people say that about political figures all the time. It drives me crazy. But if you say that, it just tells me you have no idea what the word means. And secondly, you've been watching too many Keanu Reeves movies, so we just need to step back and say, no, that's not what it is. Second reason, second reason, is that I think it's important that you know that our version of Christianity has not always been the only version of Christianity. The fourth part of this series that we're going to be getting into, it's actually going to be talking about, we're going to start it in June, and it's going to be talking about how our version of Christianity was able to dominate all the other versions of Christianity. How were you able to stamp out all those other versions and why we ended up where we are today. So that's what we're going to be talking about. All right, the third and final reason why I talked about this is because I know that most of you in here don't care about this conflict in the least. Like, not one iota. I know you all couldn't care less about this. This happened like 1,900 years ago, right? Like, how does this have any relevance to my life whatsoever? Like, I get it. I understand. And I, I would be willing to wager a whole year's salary on the fact that none of you in here are having conversations and debates over whether Jesus is pure spirit or flesh and blood. If you are, you are wasting precious moments of your life. Let me tell you that. The only reason we're talking about this is because this particular conflict happens to be preserved in our Bible. Like, it's just in these letters. And so it's just kind of there, right? So I'm telling you about them. But it raises an important question for me. And that question is, is the Bible still relevant in our world today? Now, I know by saying that I'm poking at the bear here. And I don't want you all to think that I don't think the Bible isn't important. Like, I think the Bible is extraordinarily important. What did I just say? Alex said the Bible is extraordinarily important. It's on tape, so you can't go back and say otherwise, okay? I wouldn't be preaching out of the Bible every week if I didn't. There's a difference, though, between importance and relevance. And I do think that for many people outside of the church, they do not see the Bible as being relevant to the lives that they lead today. Let me take you through just a little thought experiment so you can kind of understand where they're coming from. Let's say just you know nothing about Christianity and you know nothing about the Bible. And one day you pick up that Bible that's in your pew and you open it up and you happen to turn to the pages of First and Second John and you start reading. Now what you're going to realize very quickly is that it's hard to understand, right? You don't know the background. You don't know the context behind it. You're reading about the Antichrist. It's all very confusing. And you're asking yourself the question, what exactly does this have to do with my life here and now? How is this relevant to my concerns and worries in the world? Which is a good question to ask, right? But the fact is that when you're reading this book, you're sitting here and you're saying to yourself, well, if you've been in the church, like let's say you've grown up in the church, right? If you grow up in the church and you kind of know the contents of the Bible, this is what you're going to say about First and Second John. You say, ah, yeah, well, okay. Like, here's the deal. Yeah, First and Second John, not that relevant to your life. Like, there's very little in there you can use. But there's other parts of the Bible, right, that are way more relevant to your life. And you should read those because those matter. That's what we do in church, right? We focus on the parts that are important and meaningful, and we kind of just ignore the rest, don't we? Isn't that why you hire me? That's a big reason why you pay me, right? I mean, you pay me 
to kind of show you the bits that are meaningful and important and not to waste your time on Sunday morning with the things that don't matter, with today being a possible exception, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. What I would like to suggest to you this morning is that although this approach works for those of us inside of the church, the fact is, I think that's the very reason why people on the outside of the church feel that the Bible has no relevance to their lives. Because here's the thing. There's not a single Christian in the world who can sit there and say that every word of the Bible matters. You can't do it. Every single Christian picks and chooses the things that they feel are important for them. Let me show you how most of, you go to any church in Arlington Heights, any church really in the world, what you're going to find is this. Most Christians, they're going to focus in the New Testament, they focus on the four Gospels and a few of the letters that you find. And they're not going to get into all of them because there's some weird stuff in there, just like we found out today, right? So you avoid some of that. And then when it comes to the Old Testament, well, Genesis is good, right? We're all good with that one, right? Um, maybe Exodus, but you're definitely not going to do Leviticus. That's where all those laws are. You're not going to bother reading that. And maybe once you get into the histories a little bit, you'll read some of those. And maybe a little bit of the wisdom literature, like some Psalms or some Proverbs. But you're not going to read all the prophets, that's for sure. You're just going to focus on the stuff that matters to Jesus. And by the way, the Old Testament, that's two-thirds of the Bible. And we sit there and we say, eh, it doesn't matter that much. It's mostly for the Jews anyway, right? <laughs> so is it any wonder that this is the way that we approach the Bible, that people on the outside are sitting there and saying, ah, you know what, when it comes to the Bible, I think I'll pass. Because this is what people on the outside see us doing. They say, you're picking and choosing the parts that you like. You're picking and choosing the things that you think will support your way of looking at the world. You have your way of looking at the world. You want to find the things that support what you already think. And then you just ignore the rest. And they're right about that. We do that all the time. Let me give you just one example of this. One example. There are lots. But let me give you one. This is a very easy one. This comes from Luke 14, 33. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. How many people in here have possessions? All of us, right? Now, how many of you in here consider yourself a follower of Jesus? Yeah? He doesn't. Based on that, you're not a follower of Jesus. He's being straight up. Now, how do we deal with this? What do we say? We say, ah, he didn't mean it. Right? I mean, that's what we do. Or we say, if he did mean it, I'm just not going to bother worrying about it. Now, you cannot sit there and say that the Bible is of ultimate importance to your life and then ignore the parts you don't like. That is hypocrisy, my friends. You can't do that. So, how do we deal with this problem? Because this is a problem that has been on my mind for a long time. And I want to end this morning by offering you a solution to this. How we can actually fix this issue. So, I'm going to lay this out there for you. You tell me if you think that this is true, okay? Because I think truth is all about it. The first thing I think we need to do is we need to embrace the hypocrisy. We need to own the fact that we don't follow at all. So here's what I think we actually do. I think this is a reflection of reality. So, is the Bible important to us? Yes, yes it is. I would say that's true, right? 
But here's the thing. The Bible is not the end-all, be-all for us. The Bible is a starting point that tells us the story of the early church, of Jesus, and the Jewish people. Is that true? That's true. But we do not follow all of the things in the Bible. We do not do everything that it says. Is that true? Absolutely it is. We use the Bible as a guide to give us a sense of who God is and how this God expects us to live our lives in the most basic way. Is that true? That is true. Okay, now that's truth, right? So if this is how we can just be honest about how we approach things internally, then I think we can actually have a much more honest message externally. So this is how I think we need to be talking to people outside the church. This is what we need to be saying. We are a group of people who come together every week because we are trying to figure out this puzzle called life. True? I assume that's why most of you are here. And the fact is that all of us in here, we come with different life experiences. We come from different places with different things that we know, different truths that we adhere to. And when we come together, we bring that all into one place, and what we acknowledge as a group of people is that none of us holds the entire piece of the puzzle, or the whole puzzle together. Each of us holds a piece unto ourselves, and we need everybody. We need you to be a part of us if we're going to figure out this puzzle called life and to become the people who God intended us to be. Now, I think that's a real honest way to talk about what this church does. You may not agree that that's what the church is for, but I think that that's what, where we should be going. Because the fact is, you live in a world today where truth is a hard commodity to come by. Am I right about that? Okay. And this place is a place where people come together seeking truth. And in my opinion, truth is something that everybody needs, Truth is something that everybody seeks, and therefore truth will always be relevant. And therefore, if we are willing to come together and say as one people that we are seeking the truth, and we are using the Bible to do it as best we can, and we are trying to be the people that God intended us to be, then I think that we can be the church of the 21st century, and that we will survive, and that ultimately I think people will see us as a place where they can come, where they can't get anything else like that in the world. That is what makes us unique. That is why people should be here, and I hope that this is something that you will carry out into the world and tell other people about, because the fact is, we have something here that other people don't have. The truth will always be relevant, and may we be a people who sees the truth, and who comes together, and who tries to make this church a place where we can become the people who God intended us to be. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www dot firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.